This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast tonight, and we are continuing our nine-part series of The Body, Constructing a New You. And tonight's topic is healthy relationships. And we're going to be discussing how these relationships, whether toxic or healthy, uh, affect the body, mind, and spirit. So as the constructionists, we desire to help the community and really each one of our listeners, but the community that is around us and the community that is around you to learn a new framework of worldview that's relevant and loving to people. And part of this is getting our own house in order. So we need to learn how to love ourselves in order to love others. And so we need to figure out a new worldview framework that is loving to self. We want you to watch a TED.com video called The Benefits of Not Being a Jerk to Yourself by Dan Harris. TED.com, that's going to be in the show notes, The Benefit of Not Being a Jerk to Yourself. And we promoted this video each and every week because we think it's an important perspective on the topic of the con constructing a new you, the body, and learning a new framework of living and just considering self and considering others in our daily life. So in previous podcasts, we've discussed how when we deconstruct things, if we don't have a vision forward, if we don't have a goal or some point that we're moving towards, we many times become the very thing that we are uh, rejecting. And so as we deconstruct, we need to construct a new worldview. It's oftentimes very easy to become the very thing that we are being so different from. We become exactly the same. So this framework, doing away with old topic, uh, to toxic behaviors, old habits, and constructing something really healthy to grab onto. So this is our thinking space. We're here to just present ideas. We're here to present thoughts. We're not claiming to be experts in these topics. We're just claiming to be thinkers and people that are here uh, just having some fun with these topics and exploring new thoughts and new ideas, coming up with some imaginative, enchanting ideas. We hope that many of you can uh, cling on to in your own life and develop your own framework. We're not giving you a framework. We're not telling you what to do. We just want you to adopt some things maybe into your life, some practical thoughts and maybe some theologies to live by, hopefully that would be a benefit to your life. So this nine-part series is, uh, as we've gone through this, maybe you can go back and pick up some of the uh, previous episodes, because as we've gone through this, we've built on each of the podcasts. So these are standalone, yet they are very closely related to the previous um, episodes. So we talked about goal setting. We talked about habits and toxic behaviors. We talked about self-concept and the idea of beauty. Fitness and nutrition was a two-part series. The second part was with Stacy Cannon 
cipher.life. You could ch check that one out. It was very good. Spiritual practice and meditation was last week. And today we're talking about healthy relationships. Next week, we're going to talk through okay. mental health. And then, of course, something that's often neglected is rest. And so our last nine out of the nine part series, we're ending it with rest. So note to our supporters, number one, we want you to watch our episodes. We want you to engage with us, um, type in some things in the social media chat box that you uh, listen to and you engage with. We'll respond to those in real time. Like this is live right now. So we'll respond to those during the week. We also want the questions to come to us. And so we'll respond to those throughout the week as well. If you're picking this up through on the weekday. So this is, uh, this is of course free to you. And we want to always give this information out, uh, free. So that's why we're doing it on a social media platform that is open to everybody. If you want to support us and become a financial supporter, go to resonatelife.org to the give tab, and you can sign up to be a financial supporter. If this is beneficial and you want to give to us, to us, um, in this way. So today we're talking about healthy relationships and we're also just synonymously talking about toxic relationships too. So we're using healthy relationships. That's the goal, but maybe we need to deconstruct some toxic relationships that we have in our life. And, and maybe that is just a toxic relationship that we have with ourselves that we need to deconstruct something about self in order to capture and construct something about self that's healthier for our future. Well, first I want to just open up with and talking about relationships um, in general. And there is an old saying in the church that since I'm a pastor, I've been a pastor for 25 years. And so there's an old saying in the church that we should have relationships because relationships matter to God. And that has always been a saying in faith communities, relationships matter to God. And I think that that is true, that relationships matter to God, but that's kind of in the clouds thinking. I mean, I don't see God walking around. I mean, I might experience God every once in a while. I might claim to have a relationship with God personally, or corporately or communally, yet relationships need to be and are essential to my life here on earth. And so relationships are important and need to be important to us as people. So relationships are important to me. And I want to change that, that I, I have relationships because they're important to me. And as Sharia talked in the pre-work pre is she doesn't want relationships with people because God told her to have a relationship with some with her. Uh, she wants to have relationships with people because she wants to have relationships with people because relationships are important to her. So relationships are important to us as a group, as the three of us, and we desire them to be important to you, healthy relationships. And we need to talk through that. So what do relationships do for us? Because if relationships are important, I got to figure out why. And so the why is, is this relationships actually do something for our lives. Interpersonal relationships are important because they keep us healthy. Now that kind of sounds funny when you think, well, how could it possibly a relationship help me to be a healthy individual? Well, I would say that just communication and just interpersonal connection, having conversation with people, bouncing ideas off of people, 
maybe receiving some feedback on my ideas, thoughts, or, or what I do. Just having a, an accountable or having a interpersonal or a iterative type relationship with somebody brings health to our lives. And science actually proves that relationships elongate our life because we have interpersonal relationships. Studies have revealed that they bring enough joy or enjoyment for the long term. I mean, sometimes relationships get messy and difficult and they're hard, yet healthy relationships, they bring enough enjoyment to life that we live longer. And so a platonic relationship or a romantic relationship can help elongate our life. So if you want to live a little bit longer or maybe learn how to deal with stress a little bit better through life, one of the recommendations is to develop new friendships. So it gives us that strong sense of belonging. It gives us that belonging that lets us, allows us, gives ourselves, ourself permission to actually live a longer life. It helps us be more resilient to stress. Um, maybe we can communicate some of the stress out of us and we are no longer just embodying stress, that we have some people that give and receive in relationship that helps us to navigate stress uh, better. So it is proven that relationships bring great joy to our life. We share our life with other people, maybe through tough times, good times, good laughs. It all result, results in a lot of, of joy. So I, I believe that since the beginning of time, now I wasn't around at the beginning of time, so I'm not sure, but I do believe that since the beginning of time, relationships have been around. And relationships are considered what they call the bedrock of society, of family, of community, of future. So things rise and fall on relationships. So they do bring great joy and provide a lot of support. So as we develop healthier relationships, having that support, I don't know if you've ever had a workout partner or somebody that you go to the gym with or a yoga partner or somebody that you take a spin class with or something like that in physical health. Sometimes that encouragement through that, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm giving up on this. I, I want to quit. During those quit times, you have somebody that's your cheering squad, like a cheerleader in your life. That person gives you support in the times that, well, when you believe you can't make it and when you believe that it's a tough time or, or maybe you just don't feel, think, or perceive that you have the skill set to navigate it, you do have relationships and can build relationships in your life that can provide that kind of support. But something simple that I, I re, uh, read and read some research on that's very interesting is loneliness actually creates just inside of us unhealthiness, either unhealthiness in our brain, like just mental unhealthiness or actually physical unhealthiness, loneliness or isolation, feelings of isolation can create not only just mental unhealthiness or physical unhealthiness, uh, but just the isolation in and of itself for extended periods of time can can be a very painful experience. There's something different between between being alone and lonely. So being alone is a state, being lonely is a sense of a painful experience of uh, maybe extended long period of time of aloneness. And of course, 
relationships help us to relate. And that is important just to think about, just maybe existentially, that, that relationships, good or bad, how do we know how to relate to others is because we relate to others. So as we have friends, as we lose friends, as we're married, as we lose marriages, as we have work partners and work colleagues and we lose work colleagues, as we have that ebb and flow of relationships in our life, it helps us to relate. And so some people don't find a lot of value in relationships. And most of the time, in the 25 years that I've been a pastor, I've, I feel like and think and perceive that I've been in this incubator study of toxic relationships. So the church many times is full of toxic relationships. Lots of people with hurts, habits, and hangups, they come to church, but then they develop and they, they have the same behavioral patterns in church that they went to church for or trying to seek help or answers for. And so a lot of times I would say that many churches just don't provide the avenues for healthiness. They don't provide the ha avenues of overcoming some of our toxic behaviors. So the conclusion of that is the church many times is full of toxic behaviors without growth. That's the problem without overcoming or providing the necessary tools or outside influences, therapy, counseling, and such. Those things are not promoted necessarily in many church environments. So we struggle many times in church to grow. So I've been in a, the church, many different types of churches for 25 years. It has been an incubator study. And I would say that most people, this is my conclusion, most people struggle with relationships because they struggle with relationships. Most people struggle with relationships because they've been toxic. They are toxic or they're used to toxicity and just let toxicity perpetuate. And that is their foil. That is their comparison. That is their example of relationships. So if we can only develop a framework of healthy relationships, as we say, I don't want toxic relationships in my life but I don't understand what a healthy relationship looks like. So if we could today spend some time thinking about just the space to think, no judgment. I mean, I've had toxic relationships in my life too. We all have, and we call it, we can all name it. You know, we were a part of it and I have my side of the street. They have their side of the street, but together it created a toxic road. And so, so we've all had toxic relationships. But tonight is going to talk about, we're going to talk about how to have a healthy framework of relationships. How are we going to develop relationships for our future? So with that said, I'm going to turn the microphone over to Sherea. She's going to talk about uh, the first in faith communities, the relationship that's talked about the most. We're not, we're not going to talk about Asbury at all? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> we're not. I'm just so upset you brought it up. <clears throat> Jake is talking about the revival that's happening in Kentucky right now. It's been an ongoing discussion amongst some of us. No, we're just not going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about relationships. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to turn okay. it over to Sherea. She might bring it up. Nope. But I'm going to talk. I'm going to turn it over I'll, to Sherea. I'll, She's going to talk about relationship, our relationship with God. 
And what is a healthy relationship with God, Shreya? So teach us something. Help us to understand. Okay. Uh, so there's a very traditional approach to relationship with God that usually centers on some version of quiet time or devotional time. Um, and while there's some value in that, we talked about spiritual practices last week and how quiet time is usually like this one size fits all approach to spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. um, so while I do want to mention spiritual practice as an aspect of relationship with God, I also want to be clear that spiritual practice can look like a lot of things. So if you missed last week's broadcast, maybe go back and give it a listen. Um, but relationship with God, with God does not have to be confined to morning quiet time. Um, in my experience, conversations around relationship with God center on what we are doing for that relationship, which makes sense since that's the part that we can control. Um, but for our conversation tonight, I wanted to draw on a book that I just finished this week. Um, I have the ebook, so I can't do a show and tell, but it's called Attached to God by Crispin Mayfield. Crispin is a therapist here in the Portland area who does a lot of work with attachment theory. Um, and in this book, he uses the framework of attachment theory to look at our relationship with God. Hmm. So we'll do kind of a quick overview of what attachment theory is and then look at it um, as it relates to relationship with God. Within attachment theory, there are four attachment styles. One is secure attachment and the other three are insecure styles. We develop our attachment styles from our earliest caregivers, often our parents, and other relationships too can influence our attachment style. If, when we were little, our caregivers were able to respond to and meet most of our needs most of the time, we developed secure attachment. This includes physical needs like food and shelter, as well as emotional needs like belonging and helping to regulate our emo emotions. In adulthood, secure attachment looks like trust of others and of ourselves in the context of relationships. So we trust ourselves to ask for what we need. We trust others to meet those needs when they can. And we trust our, ourselves to find healthy ways to get our needs met when others are not able to do so. So that's secure attachment. If for whatever reason our caregivers were unable to meet most of our needs most of the time, we develop an insecure attachment style. These insecure styles are based on the strategies we used to try to get our needs met. So while we develop these attachment patterns with our caregivers, we continue to use these strategies in our other relationships too. Most work around attachment theory focuses on people who are in one primary romantic relationship, um, since it's often in those relationships that we as adults feel our insecure attachment most acutely, but it still applies to our other relationships as well. So one insecure style is called preoccupied or anxious attachment. This style involves a hypervigilance to any shift in the relationship and a focus on managing the other's emotions in an effort to manage your own and maintain closeness. So if you're okay, then I'm okay. If you have an anxious attachment style and your needs are not being met, this can look like difficulty allowing ourselves to feel the painful feelings of unmet needs. So we call or text a bunch of times to try and feel closeness or to fix the situation and make those painful feelings go away. Can I ask a quick question? In sure. your studying with this attachment theory, mm -hmm. um, do you believe that that's anxious attachment theory or ancient attach anxious attachment style mm -hmm. 
is growing the more distracted we become as adults to our children. Is there any evidence Ooh. there? I'm not aware of any. That's okay. a really interesting question. I didn't and know it's, in, it's in one this. That I'd rather yeah, sit I didn't, on for a while. Yeah, I didn't know in this author's explanation of anxious attachment style, does he go into distracted theory? The more distracted we are, the more anxious as adults to our children. As mm -hmm. the adults are distracted, um, does that play a part in our child's um, attachment? Right. Anyway, go, go on. I'm sorry to interrupt too yeah. much there, but I just wanted to throw that in there if you knew of anything. No worries. I don't know, but it's a great okay. question. Um, okay. Another insecure style is called dismissive or avoidant attachment. So if our caregivers were unable to handle our emotions, we learn that to maintain closeness, we have to hide our emotions. This style involves withdrawing to avoid feelings of unmet needs. So there's a hyper-independence and self-reliance. This can look like creating distance to avoid painful feelings and a disconnection from one's own feelings. And the last style is called fearful or disorganized attachment. This usually shows up in cases of abuse and trauma, and it's called disorganized because it will use strategies from both the anxious and the avoidant styles without a clear pattern. Underneath mm. this style is a lot of shame and feeling unlovable. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the basic framework of attachment theory. Um, and you can extrapolate that to any of your relationships. Uh, Kevin will talk about it a little bit later in the context of relationships with others. But I've been really intrigued with the use of attachment theory in our relationship with God. Um, one foundational idea in attachment theory is that the responsibility for healthy closeness in the relationship begins with the caregiver. So it's not our responsibility as young children to facilitate closeness in the relationship. Although many of us have had to do this if our caregivers weren't able to meet our needs. This is where we developed insecure attachment. If we look at our language around closeness with God, whether that's in worship songs or in sermons or devotional books, um, the responsibility for closeness gets placed on us. So even though God is our divine parent and according to attachment theory, should be the one responsible for closeness in this relationship, in most of our Christian context, it nourishes an insecure attachment with God. So we often hear about how sin separates us from God. And so we have to try and be sinless and constantly ask, to, ask for forgiveness to get back to closeness, even though Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Hmm. So an anxious attachment style uh, with God can look like a preoccupation with avoiding sin and living a pure life. It can also look like a sort of spiritual workaholism, constantly having to do spiritual activities or be on mission for God, needing to be useful for God rather than resting in God's love. Healing Sounds like from... Puritanism to me. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So healing from anxious attachment with God and growing in secure attachment can look like rest or Sabbath, being able to relax from hypervigilance and trust that God is still with us. Um, in the book, Crispin talks about playing an hour or two of video games as a spiritual practice. So doing something that's fun and wasting time without worrying that God will be displeased about it. Mm. Avoidant mm. attachment to God looks a lot like spiritual bypassing. So we know that we're expected to have the joy of the Lord. So we avoid any negative emotions about God. 
if you've internalized the message that worry means you don't trust God, so you don't let yourself feel worried, you've likely learned avoidant attachment with God. Since emotions with God feel unsafe, an avoidance strategy can look like turning to theology to make sure that one has an answer for any difficult question that might bring up some difficult feelings. Mm. And similar to anxious attachment, it can look like frequent volunteering in church to do things for God rather than be with God. Growing to a more secure attachment with God looks like allowing ourselves to be seen by God. It means sharing our negative emotions with God without the pressure to clean them up first, even when those emotions are directed at God. And then disorganized attachment. Um, I mentioned how disorganized attachment is characterized by shame. In relationship with God, it means we've internalized the message that we are a sinner. Some theologians will emphasize this identity, telling people that God is disgusted with us if it weren't for Jesus' sacrifice. In disorganized attachment, we view God as a judge who is always ready to punish us. Or we might believe that God loves us because God's required to, but that God doesn't actually like us. God is only pleased with us to the extent that we have become more like Jesus and less like ourselves. If we feel unable to be like Jesus enough, which shame tells us we can't, we then try to make God like us a little bit more by hating the parts of ourselves that are least like Jesus. Mayfield says, there are reasons to change and grow and heal and transform, but getting closer to God is not one of them. If we try to change ourselves because we fear disconnection, it won't lead to healing. For shame-filled spirituality, it works the other way around. The antidote to shame is connection. When we can allow ourselves to be seen and known by God as we are without trying to change ourselves, we grow towards secure attachment. Meditating on God's delight in us, like the parable of the woman who loses a coin and then throws a party for her neighbors when she finds it, or the father running to and welcoming home the prodigal son. Mm. These stories can help to heal disorganized attachment. Letting go of evaluation and strict routine can also help to heal disorganized attachment to God. So when our focus is on whether or not we're growing in our relationship with God and what we need to do next for God and whether we're backsliding or not, we're focused on everything that we're failing to do or not doing, and we create the conditions for shame to grow. So try putting away the strict routines for a certain length of time, probably at least a month, and see if you can allow yourself to be as you are without having to be better. Mm. That's incredible so information. I th yeah, I think that a <clears throat> couple of thoughts that I had that just are just off the cuff. I mean, this is like really good stuff. Um, it's a great I do, book. I do. Yeah, it sounds like a great book. That's in the uh, the comments section. Jake put the mm -hmm. link in the comments. Attached to God, a practical guide to deeper spiritual experience. Um, would you would you agree disagree that any insecure attachment style to God is really um, the foundation? is shame. Hmm. Probably. That's actually was my question was going to be there too. Like I think I think when I when I was listening to your your um kind of the narrative of each one mm -hmm. I just kind of came back to that idea of well that has like like the avoidant 
if mm-hmm. I'm afraid to, if I'm afraid to have negative thoughts about God, um, there's, there's some shame there. Like if I, that. if yeah. I do, right. If I do, um, then yeah. So somebody along the way, however, I was taught, learned about, gave my life over, was discipled in some poor way or whatever it is. Shame was at kind of the foundation somewhere in there. Maybe the it disorganized. Was the, it was the impetus of change, right? Well, right. right. I think the disorganized one probably has the, the, the signature. Okay. This was just beat over the head with a stick of shame, yeah. um, which is obvious. Uh, but yeah, as I was just thinking through that, it seems like that is, that is a very, um, common theme, I guess. Yeah, maybe varying levels of shame underneath right. underneath mm-hmm. each of them. Right, right. It makes me think about trauma in our relationship with God and mm-hmm. the revival that may not be named. I'm thinking about the trauma <laughs> that's going to come, come out of, of that yeah. scenario. Yeah, yeah. And yep. the... Trauma that leads to shame and shame-filled lives. Trauma leads to disorganized relationships. Mm-hmm. Can can we blame God for our trauma and shame in our relationship? Hmm. I think if I if I look at Jeremiah, and I mm-hmm. read all the way through Jeremiah, I don't know if anyone's ever picked up that book, but um, it's in the middle One of, of my favorite. Testament. It's and part of our avoidant attachment style. I'm avoiding it at all costs. Yeah, and <laughs> a lot of his um, appeals to God are the trauma that God is causing him mm-hmm. and Israel and all these things. And so I think when you talked about how to heal from those disorganized relationships, that God has a part in that trauma as well. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that part and heal from that. Yeah, I I would agree. I think if God is God, then God is big enough for that. And it's okay to blame God. Mm-hmm. Well, also, you said something in the disorganized attachment about constantly trying to get closer to God, you know, and I'm not worth it mm-hmm. or... I can't yeah. get closer to God. I think the mental shift that many of us have had to make is, well, maybe God is is already close, mm-hmm. right? We're already close to yeah. God. It's just that needs that that just shift that paradigm shift needs to take place. Um, yeah. Another thought that I had. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I think if. Um if you associate God with a certain emotional experience, um, right. Like you have to sing the right song to be able to feel God or whatever. Um, the five point palm technique or something out there. Right. Yeah. I think that's where, um, it gets difficult to make that shift. Um, because when the feelings go away, is God still there. Mm -hmm. Right. And some people have a lot of negative subconscious ex- experiential times or emotions about God. I just mm-hmm. met somebody the other day. I was in line at the bank 
and I didn't meet them. I just, you know, was, I encountered them and they, he was collecting his money uh, from the counter and he's like, he's like, well, I got to go pay some bills. I guess it's better to give than to receive. <laughs> he's like, I don't know who hell, who, who the hell said that, but he was stupid. <laughs> and were you like, I'm a pastor. I know who said that. <laughs> yeah. And so I walked up to the counter and the, the teller looked at me and said, I think God said that. Didn't God say that? And I'm like, I think God said that. Yeah. <laughs> so people, I'm just, that's just something funny that I experienced this week, but, but, uh, that, that just kind of shows me, you know, we, we do have like even isms about God that we're drilled in our brain in a very negative way that we have an avoidant or, or a disorganized kind of hateful, um, approach to, to God. I, I was, I was just thinking also the avoidant personality or the avoidant attachment style. Um, that you mentioned, and mm -hmm. you said we have to have theological answers mm -hmm. for everything. I'm seeing that a lot in our society right now, where, you know, the counter to everyone's like open thought. So somebody will have a new thought about something, or they'll just share it on social media, or they'll give their opinion about something. I don't give my opinion about nothing on social media anymore, because I just don't want to deal with all the haters. Um, but, but there's a lot of just theology bashing or hey, 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 what Kevin, I'll call we are, theology we are sharing. We are hardcore sharing our opinions on social media right now. Oh, oh, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I don't share anything on social media. Here I am um, on social no, media. I, I don't type anything. <laughs> I don't comment on anybody's. They have stuff to watch besides. and listen for they to really get. Yeah, the they nugget. just have to watch and listen to a podcast. Uh, but when we don't allow other thoughts in the space, the space then is no longer sacred. It's no longer holy ground, to be honest, because because when we are so narrow because of our avoidant attachment style, I call it and, and then you're just like squashing everybody's fresh idea or what do you think about this or the wonder or the standing in awe, being amazed, you know, it's like, well, what about this? Or maybe God acts this way, or maybe God is this way. And that all of that is being lost in that enchantment is being lost in our society. And, and I was reading the other day, it was, it's called uh, giving a theological wedgie. So if you're a theological wedgie giver or a fundamentalist wedgie giver, you come along and you just like have an answer for everything. And the answer is no, you're wrong. And I'm right. Um, you're giving theological or fundamental wedgies to everybody and you just need to stop. And so that's that avoidant, that's that avoidant attachment style where like you're not allowing for any, anybody else's thoughts or any other ideas to come into the space and therefore the space is just well it's pharisaical it's control it's not sacred and it's no longer a sacred space yeah mm -hmm. i think in response of yours thanks Shreya. um there's a concept of the dark night of the soul yep and oh. uh yeah dark antifungan if you want to do if you want to be german like uh luther 
Uh, so you have, you may never, ever feel God in your life. You may never feel like your relationship. You may never feel like God's present, like God's there, that, um, that you've never had a movement of the Holy Spirit, if some people say that in you. And that's okay. Uh, Mother Teresa, when, before she died, she said, if I am to become a saint, which she was, I will become the saint of darkness because I've never heard the voice of God. There's some earlier writings where she says that she did hear the voice of God, kind of, but throughout her entire ministry, she never heard or experienced God. And like we all know Mother Teresa, doesn't matter what faith, what denomination you're in, mm -hmm. you know this person. And someone that spoke so loudly, God, did not hear anything back, did not feel anything back, did not have the emotion back. And I think in these attachment styles, it's an introspection of where you're at as well, that your relationship with God reflects how you, how you view yourself. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's pretty dark. Well, that was excellent, Sharia. Thank you for that uh, that um, that collective Overview. of information. It's really it's really important uh, to really focus on our relationship with God. But then, why why am I mm -hmm. behaving, acting, feeling, believing a certain mm -hmm. direction? So, Jake, our our next uh, relationship to talk about tonight is creation and so just before you get started on this, uh, there's an idea in the uh, sacred texts all over everyone's sacred texts about the idea of covenant. And the idea of covenant is this idea of relationship. And in a God covenant, you maybe have heard of like the Noahic covenant where Noah came off the boat and there was a new covenant. And that new covenant had to do with people it had to do with like the human beings it had to do with god but it also had to do with the earth with creation in and of itself and so there was a covenant a relationship promise given by god to people um that well basically god would never do again what had just happened in in this narrative story which uh, most of us on this podcast believe is a story that was written for a bigger point, a bigger idea that we need to grasp, a more of a recreation idea. And so at the beginning with Adam or this figure of human, the human, uh, the human community, and then Noah, this idea of the new covenant. And then we have Abraham, another new covenant and so we continue on to the new covenants given and then of course uh, the Christ gives ultimately this idea of a new covenant so relationships go awry uh, relationships have ebb and flow and that's just showing me all through like sacred texts but like let's say the Bible there is this idea of covenant continually being built like a new covenant new relationship that god wants uh, with us and so this relationship with creation um is has been a th is is a thread all the way through scripture and so jake why don't you explain 
uh, healthy relationships with nature, with earth. With creation, yeah. So uh, like Kevin was just saying, if you read through the Old Testament and just take a practice of looking at how the author describes the land and and the earth and the soil and the plants and the everything about it and the health of that ecosystem is directly reflected in the health of Israel's relationship with God and creation itself. And so it is a how we treat earth is a direct metaphor, direct allegory, I don't know, a connection to to how we are in relationship with God and in relationship with others. And so Shreya is taking God, Kevin's taking others, and so I'm taking the middle section of earth. So last Sunday at our church gathering, I read uh, the end of a poem by Wendell Berry, and it reads like this. Find your hope, then, on the ground under your feet. Your hope of heaven, let it rest in the ground underfoot. There is no better than its places. The world is no better than its places. The places, at last, are no better than their people, while their people continue in them. When people make dark the light within them, the world darkens as well. I firmly believe in climate change through the process of global warming. And we are in a global warming pattern. We should be in a global cooling pattern. The global warming is caused by humans, I, I believe, wholeheartedly, specifically through industry. The big word for this is called anthropogenic, that humans have caused this trend in, in the globe and in, in, in our ecosystem. We are in an ecological crisis that's coming to a head. Creation's in trouble, and it really is truly our fault. And so our connection to the land, to the soil, to God, is in direct reflection to how we treat the earth around us. Industry also has the power to change and affect the effect of their productions. And so when you look at salvation, salvation means that all of creation is healed, that humanity is healed, that the earth is healed, and that our connection with God to us and God to creation is also healed. So we had this idea that salvation is only for us, the individual, our yeah. personal reflection of, of our faith or religion with God. If there's one thing that I would love to do to change in the near history of Christianity, so the last uh, 500 years, is that salvation is not only for you, but when, when Jesus talked about salvation, salvation has come upon your house. Salvation comes to villages. Salvation comes to people. Salvation is for the community, not for the individual. So as you as you look at healing and change, think about it outside of yourself. And as Kevin talks later about um, relationships with others as well, that our job is to create healing and create spaces that people can heal. And so mm. that is part of creation. So the start of all of our idea of how to treat creation comes from Genesis. And so we all think, I think on this podcast, if I can just speak for all of us now, 
that the first three chapters of Genesis are three independent tellings of what the author believed or written down that the narrative of how the world started or came to be. And so you have Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. And so there's three cyclical poems that go together that tell the story of how the world came to be. And that is not a science textbook. That is not a fact-based idea or narrative. It is a prehistorical account to how people thought the earth came to be. And so you have metaphors in it like Adam, which is, comes from red earth, that the blood is spilled into the earth and God breathes in the nostrils of Adam and the red earth comes to life. And there we have ourselves. The crux of the entire ecological crisis is that we are disconnected from creation. We don't touch it. Most of us are not farmers, so our culture is not built on agrarianism. We don't grow our own food. Most of us. Shreya has this up a little bit, but most of us do not grow our own food. <laughs> um, we're a technologically advanced society, so we hover above creation. We're always trying to manipulate creation, make creation work for us, make our suffering as as God casts Adam and Eve out, and you will you will toil in the soil, right? That that there will be weeds and thistles, and you will. And you will struggle to make to survive. Um, our entire goal in life is to make that struggle easier. The the verse that people turn to is Genesis one twenty eight that God blessed them, like Kevin just said. This is an exact mirror of Noahic covenant and Noah, but it's the Adam and Eve cover, the the Adamic covenant. Genesis one twenty eight, God blessed them and said to them. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish in the sea, birds of the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Some translations say dominion, that you are fill the earth and have dominion over it. We take that to mean it's ours to use up. This is not that word. Dominion or is, is the idea of skillful mastery or skillful gardener, the green thumb. Able to take organisms from seed to growth to harvest, even visual harvest, like flowers and such, to seed again. Through gardening, and gardening as a culture, I think we've also lost that. Think about when you were young, how many people actually held gardens around you. But through gardening, you can fight poverty hunger, and even as uh, people in the United Kingdom and the United States during World War II, gardening was used as an idea to fight fascism, which is a super interesting concept, that you had the power and you were going to do everything that you could do to make sure that you stopped fascism in its tracks. So the world is not yours or mine to mine. No one owns the moon. I always think of those, those new articles of who's going to mine the moon. Can we just leave the moon there, please? Everybody out there <laughs> yes, listening, please. Just, just leave the moon there. Some, some ideas I come away with is know where your food comes from. I think that's super important. That I was listening to a podcast the other day that every item of food on your table, for the majority of Americans out there, 
has passed through the hands of an immigrant at some point, has even passed through a hand of, could be an indentured servant, could be even a slave. So as you're looking at your table and looking at the food that you have, all of your food is so interconnected to wealth and poverty. So know where your food comes from. Know where your clothes come from. Read your labels, read your tags. Things that are more ethically sourced are usually more expensive, and that's the issue that we're having to deal with. Mm. And so you may have to spend a little more and buy a little less to make sure that you know where your stuff is coming from. A couple weeks ago, we talked about skillful mastering, knowing how our bodies work. That's also part of creation, that we are in our bodies for 80-some years or more. And so knowing how your bodies work truly, what you're allergic to, what you thrive on, how fats and carbohydrates and <coughs> excuse me, proteins work when you take them in, try to grow something. I think the greatest come out of COVID might have been all the houseplants that people took on because you had to really struggle to keep those things alive as you were also trying to stay alive for a while too. I think that houseplant industry went up like 700% during COVID. It's huge. Huge, huge. Yeah. But just try to grow something. Try to keep something alive. There's a dead monstera next to me right now. Just try to keep things alive. Fight against the things that will have negative ramifications for your grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on and so on. There's this idea of the of the seventh generation concept that I think is really is really great, um, and it even mirrors the Old Testament scripture. No one owned the land in the Old Testament. When you looked at the, the time of the judges, um, all the way up until until David or Saul, no one owned the land. The land owned you, and so. That was the biggest switch from, from judge to king as well, is that now you have a centralized power where somebody actually owns that property and you're not just taking care of it as stewards. Um, but the Iroquois nation are the ones that come up with this idea of the seventh, the seventh generation. The Iroquois nation also is the longest participatory democracy in the world and it started in 1142. And so just think about how long that they have stuck with this system as well. This is in their constitution, written a long time ago. We now do crown you with the sacred emblem of the deer antlers. This is the high chief. The emblem of your lordship. You shall now become a mentor of the people of the five nations. The thickness of your skin shall be seven spans, which is to say that you shall be proof against anger, offensive actions, and criticism. Look and listen to the welfare of the whole people and have always in view not only the present, but also coming generations, even those whose faces are not yet beneath the surface of the ground, the unborn of the future nation. The new seven generation concept, even the household cleaning products, um, honor the last three generations before you. There's debts that we have to pay that our parents did and our grandparents and great-grandparents. Huge debts. I think in that spot timeline, think about all that we have 
that we have changed and grown through and went through with war and injustice. Yeah. The so we have things that we have to come into into repentance with, into a revival from. Plug that in again. <laughs> Looking at our own generation, what are we doing right now to creation to to change it from being healthy to being sick, unhealthy, not productive? And making decisions not for today, but for 75 years from now. So every decision that you make has a rippling effect that will affect 75 years or more from now. How we eat, what we spend, what we drive, those all have ramifications far beyond what we can even fathom, really. I view redemption as this, as this triangle. Shreya talked about our relationship with God. Kevin soon is going to talk about our relationship with others. But not, not enough is talked about with our relationship with creation. And it's part of the process into coming into correct and whole being. It's about respect. Creation, as Kevin said earlier, should make you, should wow and stand in wonder. If you've lost the wonder and awe, go to the last place that you had it. Think about that. Where's the last place that you, that you stood in awe or stood in wonder? That you didn't know how something worked? That you tried to figure it out? Start from there. So that's what I got for that creation section. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah, it's very fascinating because um, we don't talk about it enough. And the group that talks about it a lot, actually, besides the uh, Native American um, concept of the seventh generation, the other group that talks about it a lot are Buddhists. And Buddhists mm -hmm. have a very connective tissue in their relationship with creation because creation in in buddhist theology or buddhist practice is uh rather is creation is neither bad or good it's neither it's neither good or evil it's alive mm -hmm. and it's conscious so because it's alive it therefore is conscious. And since we're conscious and nature is conscious, I have a symbiotic relationship with that. And as I become more enlightened in a Buddhist practice, uh, my the Dharma tells us to become more enlightened. Therefore, I become more closer to nirvana. But in my enlightenment, in the buddhist nature i become at one with that nature my nature my enlightened nature becomes more at one with the creation nature so my enlightenment therefore tells me to take care of the earth hmm. my enlightenment tells me to garden the earth or to work in symbiosis with with the earth that's what a buddhist actually practices which i find that fascinating that they have a handle on that um but christians just are you know let it all burn type of mentality because we get that theology from the the fact that we're going somewhere else besides earth when we darwinism when the end of end of time comes that we're going to blow off to some heaven 
somewhere else. And I'm just not that. I'm a recreationist. And so heaven, according to Revelation, is coming here. And so I need to uh, prepare for that uh, for my future, my seventh generation. Yeah. So something that Stacy snuck into her presentation, which I thought not stuck, but said in a presentation was that um, you have to look at all of your food as sentient. Yeah. That even that even uh, the plants that you are consuming, if you're not if you're not a meat eater, that those plants might have feelings and emotions as well. And mm-hmm. I think that there's actually a lot of a proof or not proof. Um, that thought is also seen in the in the Old Testament as well when you read through it, that the rocks cry out, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot. There's a lot of those types of little little verses throughout that that the earth has emotion, has feeling, and what we do with that is super important. Yeah, I did not I address think... the the communities that of Christians that won't recycle because they believe yeah. that it will make Jesus come back sooner. Um, <laughs> so you have you have two sides of this coin. You have the people that actually believe they're doing damage and want to do it and the people that don't believe that they're doing damage and don't see it at all so the idea of the way that i understand not to correct you online here the way that sentient beings in buddhism they're they're they have perception as well so there's aggregates of sentient beings and so one of those is perception consciousness there's others i can't remember all five but uh, sentient beings would be more uh, animals and human beings versus plants although buddhists believe that in consciousness and so if it's alive it's conscious so as we that's why the practice that's why stacy the other week was was promoting um, vegetarian or uh, veganism because you're staying away from a perceptive conscious uh, being I'm in mean, living in symbiosis with that versus consuming it so what do we do if we can't afford that kind of food um, do the best right next right thing mm-hmm. I think that and just look at what you can do. I don't think that anyone's saying is not basing this on what you have access to, but making the right decision. And um, I believe that I'd have to look that this up. So um, healthy food does not necessarily cost more than unhealthy food calorie per calorie hmm. does that make sense well how about clothes then one more time <laughs> how about clothes i know for how a about... fact that that direct trade and products more... that are made it's much more i expensive. i uh my ethic my thought is that when you buy ethically, those clothes will last longer 
than clothes that are not sourced ethically. How about secondhand? How about if I how about if I choose sure. to give it another cycle? Is uh, that a, a more ethical practice? Well, no, no. I, like with clothes, like if I go to a yeah. secondhand store and mm -hmm. I buy, maybe it was made, you know, like from unethical practices, but I'm giving it a second round. I think Would using those things as ethic? much as possible are great. Yeah. That yeah. you, so the three R's of recycling, right? Reduce, reuse, and recycle. Right, right. Um, of conservatism, yeah. So recycle is the third. First, we have to reduce. We don't need right. everything that we have. The next no. thing is to reuse and reuse as much as you possibly can and reuse and reuse and reuse. So the things that you have to purchase, that you have to buy, that you're yeah. actually reusing those over and over again until they're spent. Um, that's why it is more ecologically sound to buy an old vehicle that's broken down, like that's not the best in gas mileage than to buy a brand new electric because the amount of virtual water that's gone into that, the, what is the battery is made out of. And we can go down that huge rabbit hole. But the, the idea of reusing and repurposing until, until it has no more give, I think is, is the, is the, the main idea of conservatism that we have that our lives are, are to be stewards and conserve conserve our resources, conserve, steward, guide, heal. I think one practice that, two practices actually that we've done as a family is reduce plastic waste, plastic use. And sometimes that is really frustrating. I'm in the kitchen, I'm trying to put something away and I just want a plastic Ziploc bag. And we have no plastic Ziploc bags. Just two nights ago, I'm trying to put food away and I just wanted a plastic Ziploc bag and I had to figure it out. And so when I did figure it out, though, it was really rewarding. I'm like, okay, I didn't need a plastic Ziploc bag. Uh, second is we've gone, we're a one car family. So really trying and striving to be and continuing to be a one car or sharing cars with my friends versus being, you know, a two or three car family. Um, it's really, I don't think uh, most of us now I understand if you know, both of us need cars and we need to get to our jobs and such. But I know one car families that they just wake up a little earlier and take the other person to work and then go to their work or, you know, vice versa. And then and then pick them up from work and or they're taking public transit home. It's been really rewarding to really strive to be a one car family. So there's other. Other options uh, that actually do cost less that we can care for the envir environment a little bit more. Any other thoughts on creation before we move on to the I others? A short one. Yeah. So we, we talked a little bit about the creation story in Genesis um, and yeah. Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden and uh, the ground producing weeds and thistles. Um, as like a, a symbol of, of the work being harder or of suffering or something like that. Um, but something that struck me is that weeds are usually super healthy. Um, like before you go eat one in your backyard, make sure you're really solid on your plant ID because you can make mistakes. Yeah. But like 
for the no, most part. Nightshade on your we salad. Were really good. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wonder if there's something to the idea of like trying to make the land be something that it isn't like rather than working together with the land, trying to make it be what you want it to be. Yeah. Yes. Um, two examples that I have. Um, there is such a thing as no till farming. Mm -hmm. um, and second, if you're using the correct uh, native species to the area that you're in, they will probably not require watering. So there yeah. are species of Oregon corn. They're not super sweet. They don't taste the best. That's kind of why we don't do this. But there are, if you if you really understand the land, you may mm -hmm. not have to even water your your crops at that point. Well, but also some other ideas would be the community gardens that are around. Yeah. Like if you don't have the land, how do you make the land do what it's do you, yeah. not doing? Mm -hmm. Is to mm -hmm. go to a community garden and participate. Uh, yeah. They kind of fell out of favor during COVID. I understand that, uh, yet they're around and some of them are yeah. just blank pieces of land sitting there ready to be, you know, dug yeah. up again to, to plant. Mm -hmm. And so, have, and they're probably CSAs a lot healthier around. right now. Yeah. You have CSAs, community support mm -hmm. agriculture mm -hmm. around. Yeah. So you can buy local and small. They're expensive totally. and we get that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thought around that too is not just, um, food that supports humans, but plenty of our native plants also support other native species too and that's also important to our own livelihood and the ecosystem and creation and all that so attachment style to the so if i apply Sheree's attachment style to the earth to creation i think that we have a disorganized view of creation attachment style to creation we yeah. react off of and towards creation pretty harshly and maybe possibly it's because we have deemed creation evil Something that we think that creation kills instead of gives life and mm -hmm. so whether it be humans killing humans waves killing humans tornadoes Earthquakes in Turkey and other places, Syria. I think it was Syria, right? Turkey mm -hmm. and Syria. Um, just recently, however many tens of thousands of people have died in those regions. So we think we, we deem creation magnificent when we see the awes and the wonders, when we go and visit the canyons and the cliffs and the mountains and the snow. And we're like, wow, this is incredible. But then do we really have a secure attachment style to creation i would say that many people because well climate change has been politicized uh and there's been a lot of natural disaster type things that we've lived through in my 50 years so i would say that our relationship with creation might be a disorganized relationship it'd be built off of drama well let's talk about relationships that are I guess typical this is a typical talk um, that probably the relationships that cause us the most trauma 
our human to human relationships because we have to deal with them on a continual 24 seven basis. But those human relationships fall into different categories. Um, although these categories can overlap, the traditional categories of human to human relationships are uh, friendships, where we have friend to friend, we have familial relationships or family. So that could be cousin, aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, um, and also, of course, our core family, like our husband or wife or partners or same-sex relationships and children. So we have our family relationships. We have our acquaintances. So we have the people that just we rub shoulders with and our acquaintances. We have romantic relationships uh, that we have. We have sexual relationships and we have work relationships. So you can see right away that those relationships are, they overlap, they rub their own shoulders together. So you can have a family relationship like, you know, your, your husband, wife, that would, you would consider that your family or same sex relationship would be considered your family. And then your children um, would be considered your family. But then those cross lines into romantic relationships and such. Uh, one interesting category of relationship would be uh, situational relationships. So you have a situation that you're in and you develop a temporary, maybe just that maybe a lifelong, but you, you develop that in a situation. Maybe you had a crisis and you developed, maybe you had a health crisis and all of a sudden you became friends with your doctor. Um, that's a situational relationship. So sometimes called a situationship, <laughs> kind of funny, but, uh, but uh, we have funny names for our relationships. So friendships between guys that are close are called bromances. And now we have uh, situationships. Those are, um, I'm friends with the, the care um, doctor that helped me through my heart attack or whatever. So that is a framework. That's a basic like a, a, a list of human to human relationships that we uh, have. Most people subscribe and, and believe in those kinds of relationships. Um, I believe that they cross lines. They're more um, relationships are spectrum based more than just categories. Um, sometimes we have close relationships that are friends, but you would consider them, let's say your best friend. Some people use that language, uh, but those relationships, many of them are platonic relationships. They can occur in all kinds of settings. They can occur in work settings or just friendship settings. Um, they can involve same sex or opposite sex people or, uh, or just all genders in general, uh, relationships and platonic um, style or a classmate or a coworker, you can have connection with people in virtually every setting that is that is platonic. Um, if you're involved in some kind of organization, you volunteer somewhere, those are all platonic relationships. This is, I believe, the social support relationship that we need in those categories of healthy, where we are, we live longer, we, uh, we are healthier in our body, in our mind, in our soul. These are the relationships that can be very supportive. So having um, a platonic, good set of platonic relationships can reduce your uh, risk of disease, lower your risk for depression and anxiety, 
Um, and actually, there's scientific research that it boosts your immunity. Now, the only reason for that is because you're around people that you're not normally around. And so they're bringing in bugs and viruses into your life that you haven't been exposed to. And so that definitely boosts your immunity. So that was just science right there um, of, of relationships. Then we have our romantic relationships. Those are like a next, I guess, level of intimacy. You can categorize that of feelings of love and attraction for another person. And of course, romantic ideas can vary. And so you can be infatuated or you can have more intimate or maybe a, a marriage commitment in romantic relationships or a lifelong partner style relationships. Um, those are described, I guess, in different ways. Romantic relationships can be romantic love is a combination between somewhere of passion and intimacy. No one's really been able to categorize it or put it in a box of what a romantic relationship is supposed to look like because the ebb and flow of life, romance or romantic passions and such change or evolve or there's sometimes more of it or less of it depending on your situation. And so you can have a romantic relationship that has a season of no passion, uh, less season of intimacy or greater seasons of passion and intimacy. So, so two big categories, platonic or romantic, basically are two categories that, you know, sociologists and psychologists and relationship counselors have categorized, separating those two based on uh, the love and the passion and the um, infatuation and the, I guess, the attraction towards another person. Mm -hmm. But then there's a third category of relationships, and those are toxic. And so these are the interpersonal relationships that um, get intertwined or intermingled um, emotionally and physically and psychologically where your well-being is undermined. And so the toxic relationships in our life can basically... Uh, leave us uh, shamed. They can leave us humiliated. We're misunderstood a lot in toxic relationships. We don't feel supported in toxic relationships. So any relationship, whether it be familial friendship, romantic, um, whatever it is, even coworkers, they can be toxic people uh, in our in our lives. And so toxic relationships are really categorized by kind of some signature markers. Now, now to say, it, oh, I, I have somebody in my life that does this thing to me doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you're in a toxic relationship. It just means that they're doing that thing to you. If they continue to do that thing to you, whatever that thing is, and I'm going to give you a list of things, um, but if they continue to do it, then it moves from healthy to toxic, where if you have a pattern of behavior or a pattern of, I guess, a lack of support, um, in your in your life. So lack of support is number one, blaming, constantly blaming, competitiveness, controlling behavior, disrespect, dishonesty, gaslighting, hostility, jealousy, passive aggressive behaviors, poor communication, and causing stress. So those are kind of the signature markers of a toxic relationship. Um, and that can happen in both romantic and platonic relationships. But it's given this special category because many of us have dealt with toxic relationships. 
and uh, we need to learn about them, know about them, and um, hopefully uh, get the support and the counseling and the therapy that we need to overcome being toxic and also overcome the relationship that is toxic and, and saying no to people out there that, that I would, I would say, I can't have a relationship right now with you in the type of situation that we're in. So learning to say no, um, in my years of being in a faith community, I've learned that really relationships are on a spectrum. You have close relationships, you have not so close relationships. A lot of people in faith communities use the word family, brother, sister. They use affectionate terms. Um, you can grow close relationships in faith communities as friendships. And some of those can even, I've seen, turn into romantic relationships, you know, where you're missionally dating um, in a church or whatever. <laughs> but but uh, they really are. Relationships are more on a, on a spectrum. They can evolve. They can de-evolve. You can be close for a while because you're working on a project together. You can grow. They call it growing apart. You can grow apart. Just because you're growing apart or growing close doesn't make it toxic. And, and just because you um, have closer relationships with others and not so close, those are not the signature markers of toxic. There's a certain level of intimacy or certain level of purpose that we can find in relationships and they are on a spectrum. So I've seen, I've actually seen uh, divorced couples with children very effectively co-parenting their children. Very effectively. They parented, they are parenting their children better now as a divorced couple than they were as a married couple. Why? Because they discovered that they weren't effective people together and they just didn't work. And either one was maybe too abusive. One was, you know, maybe struggled with anger. Somebody took that anger out on another individual. Uh, maybe they were an addict. Maybe they just in the marriage, they just lost their identity themselves. Maybe there was just a process of losing self in the marriage. Once they got out of the marriage or out of the toxic relationship, they might have matured up. They might have gotten the healthy resources they needed and grew through a lot of toxicity in their life, and they became a great co-parent. So whatever, whatever happens, whatever the reason of divorce or the reason of a breakup of a marriage, I'm specifically talking about marriage, I've seen it. I've seen them not be an effective couple together, but definitely being an effective uh, co-parent. It, it can be done if you're willing to do the hard work and that's the thing you're willing i've heard of divorced couples being very good friends i've heard of a divorced couple that own a business together and still own they own their business together when they were married they couldn't figure out their relationship married now they're great business partners and they have boundaries of course they're both remarried or excuse me one is remarried the other one's not not remarried but they have great boundaries they're working together for each other's success with those boundaries in the same business how is that possible well i think that just working together and doing the hard work of co-life or co-working together or co-parenting it can work now i just mentioned the word boundaries I don't think that boundaries is a universal term that you can just throw out there one size fits all. And, and when somebody throws the word boundary at me, usually they mean I'm judging your life. 
or I'm judging your relationships or I'm judging your friendships. That's what usually happens. I'm judging your work ethic. That's what usually what they mean by you need boundaries. You need to take time off. You need to do this. You need to, they're actually judging me. I wish that they would just say you need to take some time off or have some work boundaries or whatever. Um, but they use this word boundaries. It's just a kind of a term that people throw out there. One size fits all because they actually think that you're not living your life, right? Your relationships are not right. And so therefore they throw out this, this word. I think that relationships are very complex. I've been in the relationship business for, you know, a quarter of a century and I definitely believe they're complex. I think they're more complex um, in faith communities than not in faith communities. Uh, we have all the resources uh, available to us and we reject them like counseling, therapy, and psychology. So we reject a lot of the resources. So therefore we live in this cluster of an environment of relationships and they get even more complex because we think God is going to fix everything. God's going to fix my marriage. God's going to fix my parenting. God's going to fix my life. And we don't look at the resources around us. So I would say just in general, relationships are very complex in nature to begin with. And boundaries, having boundaries in relationships are very important. Um, I think that boundaries basically are mutual, agreed upon rules of engagement, space and time and place um, by all parties. And so those are, those are very personal. Coming up with good, healthy boundaries is a personal decision. Um, and that we mutually agree upon. So we need to be very careful about how we judge other people. I know great groups of friends, college friends that are still college friends. Either they're still friends out of college 20 years later. They're still running around, carousing around, doing life together and, and loving life. And you look at it from the outside and you say, why don't you grow up? You know, why aren't you growing up? That's a really harsh judgment call because they just found a great group of friends um, that are that they just love doing uh, certain types of life together. I know people that have been friends for 50 years. How do they last that long as friends being friends for 50 years? Well, I would say that what we're not familiar with, we usually judge. And what we're unfamiliar with, we usually are critical and and we say, why don't you, you know, grow up past your high school friends or whatever the issue is. And I think we need to seem to be very careful. And it's important to uh, be very careful. Everyone, um, it's one of our main problems in society is we're judgmental of, of people. We don't know people's situation. We don't know their marriages. We don't know their partnerships. We don't know their work environments. So the relationships that people have, they might have developed out of necessity. They might have developed out of a certain crisis. They might have developed out of a certain situation. And so we need to learn people. Um, one of the critiques of America is the downfall of America is the breakdown of the nuclear family. And I've heard that for, for years. Um, the judgment call there is people don't care about lifelong marriages anymore. That, that lifelong marriage, because we've entered into a no-fault divorce society, that that is the breakdown of America. You know, no one asks the question of how culture has changed. No one asks the question of the pressures that are put on and the stresses that are put on people, the types of new types of trauma that people are experiencing, um, the work demands, 
now we have social media as a factor and we have like internet shame based you know mentalities that we're wrapped up into so no one is really asking those questions how is that affecting our our relationships our marriages our friendships nobody's asking really that well, some people are but i i know that faith communities are not asking that that question we're just judging people oh your relationship's not working out oh you're thinking about divorce god hates divorce right and we just throw it at people and it's like well maybe they're actually experiencing real real serious dramas that we need to consider in this equation maybe this person is controlling and maybe the person that leaves is finally free to be themselves or to have a relationship with god or have a relationship with others or to be able to spiritually be whole i think we really need to be careful of our our judgment call here maybe they're healthier a healthier person outside of their relationship current relationship because it was so toxic like a toxic control so i would say that uh that is that then is that is divorce the breakdown of the, the breakdown of the nuclear family, divorce is the reason for our cultural collapse, or was the breakdown long before? I would say the breakdown was long before people remained in toxic, toxic relationships and were abused um, for long periods of time and felt no way out. That had an effect for generations. You talk about seventh generation thinking. That's had an effect for for generations of of time. So I would I would like us to be very careful because I think that the breakdown of our culture wasn't the breakdown of the nuclear family. The breakdown of culture happened long before divorce was as common as it is today. Long, long before. So which is it right we need to have careful consideration of the judgment calls of what a breakdown of a culture is or healthy relationships are or are not the church is notorious for defining what a perfect relationship looks like and if you do not match up to that standard you are not acting in a godly way so there's lots of shame around parenting there's lots of shame around relationships in church and oh if you are single in a faith community that is just you are not according to faith communities and and traditional christianity it's like you're not a whole person people don't know what to do with you and it is it is a disgrace i would say think about all the apostles and the and jesus in jesus self right think about who jesus was and and what Paul said about being single. Um, we have really, really done a disgrace to our single uh, people because they could have wonderful relationships in the church with married couples, with parents, with, with, uh, with um, the same age group. They have wonderful relationships in the church. If we would just think of people as people first and not objectify them as, as a material. So let's talk about the breakdown a little bit. I think that uh, the breakdown, what caused the breakdown? I think that we took spiritual and turned it into material. That's the breakdown. We took that which is spiritual and turned it into objects. 
So we, as the image of God, we objectified one another. We begin to objectify people. Uh, the breakdown comes from we, instead of, instead of building people up and, and love between others and taking the greatest command seriously uh, and cultivating intimacy and connection and avenues of connection, living in that wonderment of, that's amazing. You people are amazing. Your relationships are amazing. How you are treating others is, and looking for that wonderment each time as the image of God connects with another image of God, as friendships are built, as people connect with one another, whether it be, you know, two by two or three by three or groups or whatever, um, the mystery uh, of all of that, the mystery of relationships has been lost, I think, in the church. Relationships have been manufactured. You take courses in relationships. You take, uh, you literally take courses in discipleship. How to decide, how about just let's ask people questions, how they are and what their relationship, you know, they want it to look like um, between each other and God. So some simple things, some simple ideas of, creating wonder in relationships again, and really seeking after the spiritual in relationships and the mystery relationships is the mystery of who we are. Like when was the last time you really wanted to know who somebody was, their testimony, their history, where they came from, uh, who their parents were, how they were raised, how they wanted to be raised. I mean, the mystery of basically their being how about who they, what they think their purpose is? Like, what's your purpose? Like, what, what do you want to do with your, with your life? We ask people those questions when they're going through crisis. Like, I just lost my job and I don't know what to do. I lost my family. I lost my job. I'm now living in an apartment. And we go, well, how were you raised? Tell me about your history. Tell me about your background. We try to come up with solutions and pathways forward for people to find new answers for their broken lives. And I think that that's important, but how about let's just ask those questions all the time. Just live in wonderment about people and relationships mm -hmm. and think of them as spiritual beings. How about beauty, finding beauty in, in each other? That was a beautiful thing. You are a beautiful person. How about just finding truth in one another instead of always looking for lies? How about just let's dig out truth in in each other, asking questions about what do you believe is about you is true. I'm finding good instead of always being like the evil sniper up on the building trying to shoot shoot at people's sins. See, I told you, um, finding good in people. Like maybe we need to find pathways for people for heaven instead of trying to always make sure that people know uh, that they're if they do these certain things that they're going to hell. How about if we just think of people with positive intent? I mean, the Buddhists think of people with positive intent. They look at people with positive intent first. Could we look at people with positive intent? I mean, Jesus looked at people with positive intent. So this enchanted imagination between us, I think, is an important thing that we've lost. That's been the breakdown of our So We've objectified people, and we have for a very very long time. And the more that you act different than me, the more that you uh, look different than me, the more that you were raised different than me, come from a different background than I do, 
the more that I am unfamiliar with you as a person, the more I objectify you. So if you look different than me, you're obviously, obviously different. You're raised different. You act different. You talk different. Therefore, you are different. I'm going to treat you different. And therefore, you're objectified. Instead of living in wonderment and amazement and awe of just who you are as a person, wouldn't that be a wouldn't that be the best society to live in? I think that would be a beautiful society if we lived in an enchanted imagination of with with other people. So there's an old saying, and this old saying, I've been using it actually several times uh, this week. It came to me just driving down the road in a, in my in I was riding with Jake in his truck. And I thought, have you ever heard this saying in the main? And he's like, no, I've never heard that saying before. There's an old saying called in the main. And so this, this, um, how, how do I describe it more? Uh, with people, it's very difficult with, with systems and business. And is, is that, is that business a good business? Well, in the main, it's good. So so the majority of it is good. Is that organization good? Well, in the main, it's good. And so the majority of the organization is good, right? So if you think, is that, is that, um, is that book good? Well, in the main, it's good. So the content of the book, the most of the book is good. I know you have those fringe paragraphs, those margins that don't really make sense or are too complicated in that book, but in the main. So there's this old saying called in the main and in the main, the majority, the majority is good. And so when you say something's good in the main with people, the majority, a lot of their behavior, probably 99% of who they are, just because they're the image of God in the main, they're good. And for the majority of people that I meet, they're pretty darn good people. I haven't really met too many complete neurotic sociopaths in my life. I haven't met too many psychotic weirdos in my life. Most people that I meet are in the main good. They're good in the main. And so if we could only look at another person as maybe generally just a good person, that they're good in the main, that they're beautiful in the main, that they are the image of God completely. And in the main, they carry that image. They're a beautiful person. They could look different than you. They can act different than you. They can be raised different than you. They can perform different than you. But in the main, just because they exist and carry the title human being, in the main, I would say that if we could only change that idea. So what has caused the breakdown of our culture? I think we've objectified people and we've done it for a very long time. The original sin of the United States of America is what we did to Native American people. We objectified Native American people. We treated them as objects. We thought of them as less than. And we called them names and we put them places that we thought they should go. We did the same thing with slaves. We did the same thing with women. We are still doing the same thing with women. And we're doing the same thing with people of color, with racism and systemic 
racial issues, with systemic racism in our society. And so we need to stop what has broken our culture completely down is the objectification of othering people. And I call that othering because in, in Jesus's day, he looked at the Pharisees and thought that they were all in the wrong and they thought they were all in the right. And they were all in the wrong because they thought of the people that were other, the ones on the margins, the Samaritans, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the tax collector, the, uh, the person on the side of the road, the person that couldn't walk, the person that couldn't see, the person that couldn't talk, the person that had a skin disease. All these people were othered. They were put in the margins and Jesus picked them up off the ground and turned to the Pharisee and said, these people are going to heaven. You're the one that's going to the gnashing of teeth, he would call it, or you're going to the Gehenna. You're going to the trash dump. These people are the ones that are going to be saved. Turn to the prisoner, the criminal, and said, this day you will be with me in paradise. So I think about what we've done with the other and how we've othered people. We do it all the time. We we're not familiar, so therefore they're on the outside. So I would say that just because you are a human being, that makes you beautiful, that makes you good, that makes you wonderful, that makes you true, that makes you a child of God. Therefore, in the main, you are, you are good. And if only we could treat another uh, person. So where does the breakdown come from? Well, I think it comes from um, sin. And when we sin against one another, what is that sin? Well, we don't treat each other with equality. We don't treat one another with fairness. We don't treat one another with love. So when we break the greatest command, when we don't love one another, I would say that that's ultimately what the what ancient texts call uh, sin. And so some people believe that there's a difference between gender with sin. There's a difference between um I guess, culture and sin. So it's, uh, we sin because of the evil age or we sin because I'm this or that um, I, or I have, you know, this title or a certain, I guess, level of leadership. I, I sin. Um, I would say that we sin based on Shereya's opening, that we have certain attachment styles that make us miss the mark. We treat one another poorly because we have disorganized, avoidant, anxious attachment, insecure attachment styles. So how we were raised, a culture that continued to raise us, the people that influenced us, the people that spoke authoritatively into our lives, shame. Uh, we carry that foundation of shame through our entire life sometimes without the hard work that Brene Brown would say, you gotta do the hard work to process through and to navigate through those hurts, habits, and hangups in your life, why? Because those attachment styles, whether it be disorganized, avoidant, or anxious, we take that out on other people. So I would say as the faith communities and the one that I oversee or I uh, pastor, uh, the Christian community, I would say that we are anxious, anxious attachment styles 
our avoidant attachment styles and our disorganized, disorganized attachment styles. You talk about treating people as other. I mean, call yourself right now in a, in a Republican environment, call yourself a liberal and see what happens. Call yourself, um, talk, just, just say the word global warming or climate change in an alt-right group, just say it and see what happens. You talk about being othered. I mean, they, there's, there's very specific names that, that uh, people call one another now. Um, why? Because we've objectified one another. And I would say that that probably treating people with inequality and othering others is, is one of the greatest sins that I see through, through the Bible. So that has been, I would say, the breakdown. When we um, live in attachment styles, this anxious, disorganized, or this avoidant uh, attachment style that early on we started to begin to develop in our lives. We carried that through. I would, I would really refer back to Sherea's work in this book and do some reading and apply that lens um, that we, that lens of attachment through our attachment style. So a fear-based attachment style, like a an anxious attachment style is definitely going to make you treat another person a certain way. Um, not allowing emotions to be expressed as you were raised, whether that was quelched, devalued, um, demeaned, or basically like shamed out of you, expressing emotion, hurts, or, or pain um, that you were experiencing, definitely would develop an avoidant attachment style definitely would uh, 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 motivate you to treat another person um, that way. And so in relationships, relationships because of attachment styles, I would say are complicated. Uh, some people say they're messy. They're worth it. I would say relationships are worth it. Healthy relationships take work. You have to grow through things. You have to learn to navigate life differently with another person. Um, but I can tell you that there is much fruit, what I'll call fruit, um, much joy. Uh, you can fight disease, as science tells us, and you can live a long life if you do the hard work of relationships. Relationships affect our body. It affects our mind and it affects our soul. And so with that, I want to just close this down, ask if we have any other thoughts, Sheree or Jake, do we have any other thoughts about relationships and the framework of healthy relationships? Nope. Good. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> um, I think the framework of a healthy relationship, as you're saying, to find, to find beauty and wonderment in another person um yet and to find it in yourself first or you'll never have a healthy relationship oh yeah 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 <clears throat> i didn't even get to having a healthy relationship with self um yeah there is an old saying where there was a wise wise person that was asked by a religious teacher that said rabbi what is the greatest commandment that you can think of in all the texts that you've ever read? 
What is the greatest commandment? And that rabbi, right? If you think you're a rabbi, tell us the greatest command. And so that teacher looked at the other teacher and said, the greatest command is to love God and to love your, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jake's correct that in order to love our neighbor, we have to learn to love God and love ourselves in a very secure way. And my prayer and my hope and my positive energy that I want to send out right now to all of you is I hope that you find that security, that you find, may you find that kind of security. May you find the wonder and enchantment of God and yourself and others. And it might take therapy, it might take counseling, it might take some hard work. You could start with this book that we recommend. You could start with maybe maybe uh, Atlas of the Heart with Brene Brown that we've done podcasts on. There's books out there that you could start reading that we could recommend. Just ask us what those books are. Uh, we can recommend those. But I hope that you do the hard work and healthy relationships are worth it. So that's my hope for you and the positive thoughts that I want to send out. So with that, thanks everybody for joining us. Healthy relationships are the key to joy and a long life. And I hope that you embody that tonight and, and listen to this again. Ask any questions you have. If you want to support us, you can go to ResonateLife.org. Click on the Give tab. And you can give to us that way. Just ask us questions. We're ready to respond. Thanks, everybody, and have a great night. Good night.